Welcome to another episode of HUGE, everything you need to know about big changes in Washington. I'm Kristen Silverberg. Today we're going to focus on U.S. energy policy. The Trump administration came into office with an ambitious agenda to boost domestic energy production, embrace shale oil and gas, revive America's coal industry, and lift regulatory restrictions. Joining me to explain the future of U.S. energy policy and the implications for the U.S. and global economies is Bob McNally, president of the Rapidam Group. Bob was previously special assistant to President Bush on the National Economic Council and senior director for international energy on the National Security Council. I am also joined by Sierra Ladislaw, who is director of the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. Sierra was previously with the Department of Energy's Office of Policy and International Affairs. Thank you both for joining. So Bob, the energy landscape has changed pretty dramatically since you left government, in particular because of the impacts of the shale revolution on U.S. oil and gas production. What's happened? Yeah, it's hard to overstate the turnabout in our circumstances in energy from just 15 years ago. When I was sitting in the White House, we were looking at uh, you know, capped gas production and looking to become as in import dependent on natural gas as we were on oil building facilities in Qatar to take it into our country and so forth. And the idea that we would ever approach a peak in U.S. oil production, which we last saw in 1970, was ridiculous. So ridiculous we didn't even talk about it. And here, uh, you know, President Obama was fortunate to inherit the beginning of two big booms, two revolutions in supply, all emanating from, you know, the success of our oil and gas producers from figuring out how to get oil and gas molecules out of the rock way below the earth and that first resulted in this shale gas boom and oil uh, you know the uh, we're now they some folks say we could be uh, taking out or exceeding the peak production by the end of the year or next year in terms of US oil production so these revolutionary uh, surprising uh, huge increases in oil domestic oil and gas production utterly transformed uh, how we think about energy in this country, how we think about energy security, um, how we're perceived abroad in terms of, as, as, of an energy superpower, and I really think are remarkable. And just reminding us that, uh, you know, the history of, uh, of energy shows uh, expect the unexpected. Sarah, anything to add on that? Yeah, no, I, I just want to echo, you know, Bob's uh, mention of how remarkable it all has been. I mean, we had a recent conversation with one of the largest oil producers uh, in, in the U.S. and in, in onshore, and one of the things they remarked is, you know, what's happened in the U.S. has been one of the most remarkable things to happen in oil markets in the last 40 years, and I think that's a, it's a pretty important statement. I think that the idea that the U.S. is not only producing large amounts of oil and gas from these new shale resources, um, but that we've sort of changed the psychology of the market, right? There's this thing out there called short cycle oil now that has changed the way that people think about production times. Um, and uh, when you go down the sort of oil and gas value chain, there's a huge amount that's changed about the U.S. economy, the way that we produce these resources and utilize them both domestically and, as Bob said, you know, increasingly export more and more of them. That's probably a position that the U.S., um, you know, if you ask Richard Nixon when he first thought about energy independence, probably didn't foresee coming at that period of time. And I think it's really interesting because it's happened at a period of time where U.S. Uh, economic growth has hit a different phase, right? We are not growing the way we used to be. We're certainly incentivizing more efficiency and not using as much. And so uh, we're becoming, you know, very supply heavy at, at the same time that, you know, we're actually uh, reducing the amount that we consume in a, in a lot of energy forms. And so 
uh, we have a lot of options on the table about what we want to do with this energy resource. So Bobby, I want to follow up on some of the global implications. In 2014, reacting to this growth in shale you just described, the Saudis decided to relinquish their traditional role as swing oil producer and to preserve market share instead of price. What happened with that? Yeah, you know, the uh, I, I actually track the real change to sort of 2008 when oil prices peaked at $145, $143 per barrel. And then Saudi Arabia was unable to play the swing producer sort of supply regulating and price stabilizing role. They ran out of spare capacity in peacetime. That's, I think, when things really changed. And we realized that we didn't have a swing producer in the global oil market. And then in 2014, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia did something different. They, this time, refused to cut under too much oil, to sort of cut their own production in response to oversupply. And as a result, oil prices collapsed. I mean, we just don't see oil prices collapse by 60% in six months without a recession, a meteor, or some terrible thing happening to the global economy. But that's what we saw. And it was the investors realizing that if we don't have a swing producer able and willing, and again, I would say Saudi Arabia was unable in 2008 to put a ceiling on prices and unwilling in 2014 to put a floor under prices. Well, if you're, gonna, if you're not going to have a swing producer, then the prices are going to wildly sort of oscillate between highs that kill demand and hurt the economy and lows that force producers to shut in their wells. And those are pretty low prices, the way the oil industry works. So in 2014, Saudi Arabia showed, told us we're serious. We're not going to be the swing producer. But I think we actually learned that in 2008 when oil prices were rising. And I think those, that era, that 2008 and 2014 boom and bust, if you will, both, again, caused largely by Saudi Arabia being unable and unwilling to play the swing producer role, has put us back into what some people have clamored for for many years, the free market in oil. How many times do we hear, you know, what we need to do is beat OPEC and let the markets determine the oil price? Well, we ha I have great news for folks. And as you know, I, I just wrote a book on this, Crude Volatility, The History and Future of Boom-Bust Oil Prices under Columbia, with Columbia University Press. And there's very good news in this book. And the good news is OPEC is no longer in charge of the oil market. There's also some very bad news in this book. And that is that OPEC is no longer in charge of the global oil market. And what we should expect and what we have seen and what we saw in past periods in history when there was no supply regulator are wild, stomach-wrenching, stomach economy, uh, you know, uh, shaking, uh, geopolitically disturbing gyrations in oil prices. I like to think about it if you've been to Disneyland, it's sort of like Space Mountain, you know? <laughs> Volatile, dark, and scary. And so that is the world that we're in because oil prices uh, do naturally tend to gyrate wildly when there's no supply regulator. So we may learn there are some downsides and some policy challenges in dealing with OPEC having been sort of dethroned, if you will. 
Sarah, <laughs> anything to add to that well, alarming picture? Of yeah, I, I'm not sure how to compete with the Space Mountain of uh, oil markets, but uh, and I'm very humbled by by uh, talking about this topic with Bob, who really has done a wonderful job in putting his book together and, and put some really important food for thought on the table for anybody thinking about the future of oil markets. I do wonder, I mean, I, I find mostly when I talk with people who are thinking about oil markets that they think about it in that economist cover that we all saw several years ago, you know, the shakes versus the shales. And the thing I worry about is I think that much of what Bob said is correct and that people, but people tend to think that somebody is in charge, right? That, that either the U.S. producers are purposefully doing something or OPEC is in charge. There's a grand strategy out here. And I think what we've seen over the last several years is the oil market is actually learning a lot. It's adjusting a lot, right? Not only every year that passes do we learn more about how U.S. tight oil production actually comes out of the ground, what the hot spots are versus the not so hot spots, what the return on investment are, is, you know, how efficiently and at what price we can do this. Um, but we also are learning about, you know, within the basket of OPEC countries, we sort of deal with them as a monolith, what are their new strategies that are emerging? Saudi Arabia is, you know, fundamentally trying to rewrite sort of the, the pillars of their economy. Uh, we've got Russia with lots of different pressures. We've got within OPEC members, you know, looking to tie up market share in Asia where they see growing markets. So part of the question I have is, you know, among the strategies and the tactics that we're seeing playing out on both sides of the ledger, whether it's hedging for the short term in the U.S. on tight oil markets or, uh, or, or tight oil production, or within OPEC, you know, extending a rollover that's, that's essentially trying to get at lowering the level of global stocks to a, a particular level, have they picked the right target? Are, are they going to be able to do that? And when we figure out if they're not able to do that, what's the market response to that? So in, in addition to all of these changes on the production side, we're also seeing <coughs> shifts on the consumption side and the real energy demand shifting to emerging markets. What are the implications of that? Well, you know, one of my favorite things about thinking about the future of oil demand is uh, that, you know, it's much easier to look at the past, right? I mean, there are markets that we know a lot more about. OECD economies are much better at reporting data. So if you take one, you know, most of the major outlooks, between now and 2040, you've got um, oil demand coming from three different tranches of countries. One third is China, one third is India, and the other third is 13 other you know, rapidly developing economies about which we don't know a huge amount about their energy demand. And so there's a lot of you know, questions about whether oil will play a fundamentally different role in those economies. I think we have some level of confidence that heavy due to vehicle demand, which is really driving a lot of oil demand in those economies, is, is going to be there. That's demand that's hard to replace. But, but you know, where will there be efficiencies? Where will there be sort of changes in their demand patterns? And I think that that's, uh, that's something we don't actually understand as well as we could. Uh, and, and certainly an area that a lot of people that you know, do what Bob and I do will be spending time over the next couple of years. Right. I think Sarah made a, a great point about sort of what we can see and what we know. Uh, and, and then in some ways, I think that can hobble us. As Sarah mentioned, in the OECD, or the rich world, we have great data. And uh, we've seen, among other things, energy efficiency improve dramatically since the early 1970s in the OECD. We were able to fuel switch when sort of the Texas Railroad Commission 
lost control in 1972, which is sort of the forerunner, the grandfather, the father, you will, of OPEC, uh, and oil prices went up, we were able to take oil that we were burning for electricity generation or space heating or using in industrial uses and swap that out for nuclear or coal or gas uh, renewables. And we put in place policies to promote energy efficiency and conservation. Uh, in some parts of the OECD in Europe and Japan, they taxed it. And uh, also we had big recessions in the early uh, 80s, late 70s, early 80s, where we wrenched out more demand. But I think it's a mistake sometimes to extrapolate that experience of the OECD onto the non-OECD. Um, the opportunities for cheap fuel switching are, are not as great, I don't think. And the OECD countries are less sort of liberal in the economic, political economic sense, meaning able to shift capital and labor around dynamically and quickly to respond to price signals, and willing to cut subsidies and tax energies as we were in the OECD. And so I think, as Sarah mentioned, there are parts of the economy where oil is going to be sticky or hard to remove. And um, it has become quite fashionable, as you alluded to, I think, to uh, think about peak demand and you know electric vehicles being everywhere. And I think one thing that both OECD countries, and you mentioned uh, Sarah, President Nixon, uh, with oil independence, oil import freedom by 1980, announced in 1973. One thing governments across the planet are very good at doing is writing and announcing historic aspirational targets for energy efficiency improvements, oil independence, what have you. They're very good at making promises. Achieving those goals, however, turns out almost invariably to be very difficult because energy is just a very big thing. I think some have said it's the largest organized human activity on the planet. Is It's bigger than defense. It's bigger than agriculture. More people and money involved in finding, producing, transporting, refining, delivering energy than almost any activity we have. And to think that we're going to, because a policymaker or a government or something wishes something, be able to achieve a kind of a quick transformation is uh, is probably, you know, misguided. So, again, I think we should be... Uh, a uh, little bit, take with a little grain of salt this idea of imminent peak demand, notwithstanding the genuine and widely spread concerns about sustainability of fossil fuel production, climate change, and so forth. That's not to cast that aside, it's just to say energy is really big. With all of that as a backdrop, President Trump came into office with an ambitious agenda to boost more domestic production. What are the pieces of, of his agenda to do that? Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest pieces is one of the hardest to see because it has to do with avoided cost. You know, I think from the Republican standpoint and from the energy industry standpoint, toward the end of the Obama administration, there was a, an alarming trend towards, I think, what they would call politicization of routine infrastructure permitting. And the way it works with these midstream facilities or the pipes and the facilities that connect the fields where you're pumping the oil and gas down to the refineries and the petrochemicals and the ports where they're being sent out and shipped and refined. It's those pipes, those sinews, those, uh, those uh, channels in between where we were beginning to see with the Keystone Pipeline and Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, the environmental community having success at the federal government level in blocking those, in stopping those. 
And had that trend continued and accelerated, which uh, one could argue it would have had Mrs. Clinton been elected, I think the industry would have had a lot harder time uh, in terms of certainty and the, the regulatory back permitting it needed to go about its activities. It could have been, if not a showstopper, a show slower. And so President Trump, just by winning uh, and then reversing Keystone, reversing the DAPL decision, showed right away uh, he's not going to allow that. So he nipped in the bud this trend that we didn't see fully develop, but that would have been a big problem, I think, for the industry. So in some ways, I think that's President Trump's main uh, contribution. Otherwise, we see uh, he is reversing the Obama administration's decision to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. That was the main change under President Obama. It was just getting going. Uh, we started with cars and it was developing a, a plan and, and it was sort of having trouble in the courts with the power plant. So he was getting going. Whoever won the election, that was going to be litigated heavily uh, and contested heavily. Uh, having a Republican president or President Trump and an EPA that's going to lean in favor of industry and toward slowing or rolling back those regulations won't get rid of them right away, but it will uh, sort of give an edge to industry. But again, a final thing I'll say here, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a few minutes, the main problem coal has, and President Trump has made it very clear he wants to see coal production increase and cares about coal jobs, uh, is, is natural gas. It's in a way, it's an unintended uh, consequence, if you will, of that shale gas revolution we just talked about is it sent gas prices so low that now it is the main reason uh, coal is having trouble growing uh, in our, our, and probably the major threat to, to coal is, is low natural gas prices, again, a consequence of that, uh, that shale gas revolution. Sarah, what else on that Trump agenda? I think that what the administration has really looked at as the, as the pillars of this is to one, signal that they don't share that same climate priority. Uh, two, that they think that the signals to growth and the real drivers of growth, which was excellently outlined at the conference you guys held here not too long ago, were uh, are cutting taxes and deregulating uh, the, the regulatory state. And so what I find you know really fascinating is that not only have they sort of picked off particular areas like the infrastructure permitting that Bob mentioned, but they've called for a all-of-government regulatory review. Uh, so they will spend time looking at all of the regulation that they think inhibits the energy sector uh, and either review, revise, or you know, rescind uh, those regulations. And so it's made, uh, it's made for a busy time uh, in thinking about what are the priorities that they will focus on. Um, I think that sort of the offshore drilling uh, lease round is something that may become a priority, both because the Department of Interior has said as much, but also the Hill is quite interested in, in seeing a new offshore drilling plan. Uh, that takes a long time to do, but something they, they seem to want to do. And I think in the EPA, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency basket, I think that there's a real interest in trying to um, roll back some of the underpinning climate policies, uh, the sort of greenhouse gas emissions from power generation. I think that those are where some of the early priorities lie. But again, they've really sort of tackled a lot of, uh, or put a lot of things on the table to, you know, to be tackled. I would note though that not everything is, uh, is viewed as being positive by the energy industry. On the one hand, I think there is some concern that you know, the U.S. is becoming subject to a lot of pendulum politics, particularly in the regulatory sector, very concerned that if you overly and more aggressively deregulate, 
um, the next administration is going to go in the other direction. And what you get, and, and Bob mentioned this in sort of his you know comment about uh, litigation, is you never actually settle these issues. And then the companies have no certainty and they're not quite sure what to do. And I think that that's one area that causes some concern. I think the other one is on things like Buy America provisions. I think people are concerned that um, to the extent that the administration does find tools, um, the the energy industry is a very global industry. They think about global interconnections and trade quite a bit. The idea that you'd have to buy all of your U.S. steel uh, or your steel from the United States to build your pipelines is something that concerns people. I don't know that that's going to be the end conclusion, but there are both pros and cons in that agenda. On your climate change point, of course, President Trump recently pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. What are the key implications of that? I think there's probably two. One, I, I think, is really important to point out that the president basically said, you know, the, the intention is to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement but renegotiate a way back in. And so far, the response from the international community has been, well, you can't do that. Um, and the, the you can't do that has two parts. One, um, you technically can't pull out of the Paris Climate Accord for four years, so uh, that'll take place. Uh, the, the actual leaving of the Paris Climate Accord would actually take place um, shortly after the next presidential election. Uh, so that was by design uh, and uh, to slow down any country that was sort of thinking about pulling out to have to wait a little while. Uh, and then the second part is uh, the international community has been you know, fairly rigorous in saying you can't negotiate your way back in, but it's a long four years. Uh, so let's see what they put on the table and if it was acceptable and they could be termed as being ambitious. Um, maybe it would be fine. So I think we've got to remember that the climate negotiations have been a long game, will remain a long game. Um, I think the second big implication is what you've seen as a response in the U.S. is a huge number of states and cities and companies basically saying, um, no, we're still in. Uh, there's actually a movement called I'm Still In. and. Uh, and what you're what you're seeing there is the aggregation of a whole bunch of subnational effort to reduce emissions in the U.S. And I think that the international community is going to have to look at that and see how much that actually yields in terms of emissions reduction, uh, and what that means. And so, you know, we often say that a lot of times, energy policy in the United States is happening at the state and local level, and. I find it interesting that even under the Clinton administration, many of the plans that, that she was proposing and that were part of that platform actually did move to the state and local level because they thought they'd done a lot of what they could accomplish at the federal level. So I actually think you're going to see um, maybe an unintended consequence of pulling out is that people at the state and you know lo local level are going to be looking for more policies um, to actually push forward on this. So I think. That will just sort of exacerbate this patchwork that we've got in the U.S. of some regions heading for low-carbon policy and others not. Um, very American, but, uh, but I think that that's probably what it's incited. One observation I've had about their regulatory agenda is that they have a real issue on personnel. You know, from the, in the Bush administration, those first couple years on the regulatory issues, you know, it would take us a year to get a, reg, you know, a draft regulation uh, through the system and printed as a final rule, and then we'd spend a couple years litigating. And I wonder if they're coming up to the point where it's going to be really hard for them to get these things done by the end of the president's first term, just because they don't have personnel in place in some cases. Yeah, that is a, it is definitely a concern. Um, you know, it, the first hundred days in some ways are the easiest ones to get through, right? You can sign a lot of executive orders, you can start a lot of processes, but then you got to turn around and actually execute on them and. 
I would say government-wide, there really isn't the capability to do that right now, especially if you think the more aggressive they'd like to be in changing policy or changing regulation. It's sort of a, you know, it's a two sides of the same coin. The more you try to do, the more suspect you are to being sued for it, and all of that requires people to be able to go through that process. And so it does seem like, you know, when you have a big agenda and you have some things that you'd like to move, one of the things you learn in these positions is you've got to prioritize. And so I think we're at that period of time where we're going to start learning about what the priorities are, uh, or else I think it would be a really hard agenda to get through. And how about the point Bob made a minute ago about coal, that the principal challenge to coal is natural gas prices. On the other hand, President Trump has made reviving the coal industry a big priority. What are the things he can do, and how do you think about his, uh, his capacity to do that? Coal has a lot of headwinds, U.S. coal in particular. Uh, um, Bob highlighted the main one, which is low natural gas prices. But I think even when you look at the competitive nature of coal markets in Asia, the kind of coal we produce here in the United States, you could probably see a resurgence in coal production in certain portions of the U.S., but it's not actually going to be in enough of them for it to be a large-scale systemic solution to the kinds of problems that we're facing in those communities. Sarah just mentioned the challenges that the trade agenda could pose to the energy industry. What are some other ways that the administration's trade agendas and energy agenda may conflict? Yeah, you know, it, uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens, especially if oil prices begin to gyrate again. Uh, since President Trump got elected, they've been sort of bounced off their lows of $26 a barrel uh, in February of last year and now they've sort of been wafing around in the $40 and $50 range um, and uh, it, were prices to fall again if this oversupply that Sarah mentioned doesn't get cleaned up uh, and you have some OPEC countries and some non-OPEC countries forming a group and attempting to restrain supply to, to sort of remove this excess but if they fail and prices go back down again, you know, you will see uh, Republican administrations generally tend to be more responsive uh, to the needs of the domestic oil and gas industry. That's not, a, I think, a huge revelation. When oil prices go down, that hurts the oil and gas sector, especially the oil sector now. And I think they would interpret any revisiting of those low oil prices, which we just saw a little over a year ago. Um, as a sort of an attack by foreign producers on our shale oil sector. And, uh, you know, there are some in Congress and some supporters of the President Trump uh, who are looking at bills that would even, that would uh, investigate OPEC for non-competitive practices. Uh, back when you and I were in the White House, there was still, in the early 2000s, there had been a bill moving around, the NOPEC bill that would sue OPEC under the Sherman Antitrust Act for driving oil prices too low. And, um, and so uh, I think these things would come out of the woodwork. Republicans in the oil industry tend to run towards import tariffs and restraints on trade. And so uh, a, a downdraft in oil prices could resuscitate those ancient, uh, you know, uh, Republican sort of industry instincts towards protectionism, which from a free market perspective would be, it would be a concern. If oil prices were to go up very sharply, and with the, again, the excess of oil in the market, it's hard to see a circumstance other than a major war or disruption 
where you'd see oil prices sort of skyrocket here in the next year or two. But toward the end of the president's first term, it's possible we could be much tighter and the oil market could be prone to oil price increases. And there again, uh, they tend to sometimes bring out the worst instincts in policymakers, uh, price controls, uh, cracking down on financial market participants and trading and speculating and hedging in the, the oil markets uh, is something that usually you saw in 2008 and 2007 as oil prices were rising, calls for you know, making it harder or costlier to um, insure yourself against oil, high oil prices by, by hedging and speculating and so forth. So I think wildly gyrating oil prices are going to pose challenges to the president's trade agenda. On the one hand, the president prioritizes exports. We export now a lot of uh, oil. We were always a big gasoline and distillate exporter, but now we've suddenly become a huge uh, exporter of crude oil because the type of crude we produce here, the shale oil, is really better suited for foreign refineries. Um, and so uh, we're, uh, we're exporting a lot of oil, and that's a good thing. Uh, however, were oil prices to rise and consumers at the pump to see prices with a $3 sign before it, or God forbid, a 4 or a $5 sign before it, uh, it'll, I think, raise a test to our support for free trade. There are many folks in this country who just believe that high gasoline prices are caused by, or would be exacerbated by exports. Matter of fact, we, we um, uh, outlawed exports of crude oil back in the 1970s as a result of high oil prices. And so uh, I think one of the achievements you saw in Washington, perhaps one of the rare bipartisan substantive policy achievements in the last eight to 10 years, has been to liberalize or remove restrictions on gas, natural gas exports, and crude oil exports. And uh, I think if we get back into this space mountain ride, though, and oil prices go up, we're going to test the political support for those recently won policy gains, that openness to exports. And it's a test really for both parties, uh, and including the Republican Party. So how do you think any of this gets impacted if, for example, Democrats take over one or both houses in 2018? Well, um, I don't think Congress will play that big a role. Uh, whether it's the Democrats in charge or the Republicans, uh, unless there is a removal of this filibuster issue, as long as you need 60 votes in the Senate, to pretty much pass legislation on the Hill. And no party enjoys those 60 votes, so those are two big caveats. But as long as you have that, we've already seen with the divisions among the Republican Party that prevented health care reform passing, we really don't have single party control of Congress right now. We have a lot of little factions within both parties, and that filibuster rule keeps us basically divided. And I think were the Democrats uh, to retake the House or the Senate, unless it was, again, by overwhelming majorities or the Senate was willing to get rid of the filibuster, in which case we're into real terra incognita in this country, real, the, the pendulum politics we were talking about earlier that Sarah mentioned too, that just starts to swing a lot more. Um, but if we assume more or less everyone lives by the, more or less the rules we're living by now, Congress is going to be sort of sidelined, uh, hogtied, and I think out of the picture. And it really will be left uh, to, to the president, I think, and the administration to make most policy <clears throat> by either making snap decisions under other authorities the president has or uh, implementing you know, existing rules and regulations. Well, I learned a lot from both of you today. Thanks so much for coming.
It was nice to talk with you. Great as well. to be here with you.